0: Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. After the British disaster at Bunker Hill, General William Howe abandoned Boston and took refuge in Canada. While George Washington's Continental Army raced toward New York, the largest invasion force in the history of the Empire stormed the shores of Long Island. After one disastrous defeat after another, a desperate George Washington crossed the Delaware to initiate a much-needed victory that remains one of the most controversial military assaults in modern history. On this episode, we discuss the year 1776, the Battle of Long Island, White Plains, Trenton, and Princeton. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 3 of the series, we're discussing the American Revolutionary Era, the people, places, and ideas that defined it, and the political ideologies that gave rise to the world's first truly modern republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit my author's website, bradykreuzer.com, and of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. On this episode, we're moving into the year 1776, agreed upon by many to be really the first true opening of the American Revolutionary Period. We're going to see a war that is still in its infancy, and if you're an American rebel, one that's looking quite bleak. We're going to see a drama that involves new characters we haven't seen before, and a radical new change in the size, scope, and dimension of the war itself. As always, especially for this season, be sure that you visit my Twitter handle, at Brady Kreitzer, for helpful maps and useful links for understanding the events we're going to be discussing today better. We're going to be discussing a large-scale military campaign today, and I want you to understand that sometimes you just have to see it at Brady Kreitzer, or to make it easier, you can search on Twitter for Wartime Podcast. When we left off, we saw the American rebel army, the Continental Army, in a pretty unusual spot. They were defeated at the Battle of Bunker Hill by every standard European metric, yet at the same time, politically, they're spinning the battle as a victory. After all, they killed more than three times the number of enemy that the British inflicted on them. But now we're moving forward with a new status quo that's developed in Boston, and one that, for the British Empire, is completely untenable. Remember, they were victorious at Bunker Hill in 1775. By every standard, they should feel very good about themselves. But the fact remains, they find themselves in a very unenviable position. They are on the peninsula of Boston itself. They are surrounded by their American rebels still. And they have very little to show for their, uh, we can say, perhaps Pyrrhic victory at the Battle of Bunker Hill. Adding more strain on the British commanders is the fact that now the American rebel army has a leader. A man that has formerly served the Empire of Great Britain for most of his life. General George Washington of Virginia. Now, the game will change pretty drastically for the British. Because, again, remember, Boston is not an ideal location by any standard you could measure. And the only thing that's sort of saving the British thus far in Boston is the fact that the American rebel army is terribly undersupplied. Remember, Thomas Gage is on the small peninsula of Boston. He's surrounded on almost all sides by high ground. But because the American rebel army is so undersupplied in 1775, there's very little threat of any major artillery bombardment. Think of that. You have an army fighting for its independence, at least what they perceive to be their independence. And they have very few cannon or heavy guns to speak of. If they did, they could have blasted the British to smithereens. But the fact of the matter is they didn't, so the British felt very comfortable hanging around Boston for a few months more. That will change in March of 1775. Because in March of 1775, a new shipment will arrive for the American rebels. One that we've already talked about. The great plunder of Fort Ticonderoga in upstate New York. Remember, whenever Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen captured Fort Ticonderoga, one of the major reasons they wanted to do it was because it was largely an unnecessary fort in British North America without a French threat. It was undersupplied, it was underdefended, but it was loaded with heavy cannon and mortar rounds. Well, those cannons will make their way to Boston. It's one of the more incredible feats that we'll see in the entire revolution. But a wagon train filled with weapons, ammunition, gunpowder, and heavy guns will arrive at Boston and be placed on what we call Dorchester Heights. And that'll be the great game changer for the British in the region because they literally wake up one day in March of 1775 and then see heavy cannon pointed directly at them. Thomas Gage in Boston is no fool. He understands that their position was never really a great one, but now it's an extremely dangerous one. This will cause the entire British Army that's stationed in Boston, about 6,000 men now, to relocate. Now the question is where are they going? And this really leads us into a fuller understanding of 1776, because theoretically we're still in the year 1775. The Secretary of State for the American Colonies, this is a British official, Uh, in 1775 is named Lord George Germain and George Germain understands that this American rebellion could be very costly and the fact that these two armies are already fighting each other is beginning to show that it's nothing you're going to stamp out quickly and certainly not painlessly. So Lord George Germain uh, will begin to talk to Sir William Howe, one of the new commanding generals in the American colonies. And he begins to look at a map, and he begins to pinpoint locations he considers to be vital for stamping out this rebellion. If you're going to control the colonies, where will you do it? Well, that decision is quite easy. If you can visualize British North America, I want you to really think of it as a world with four major cities. You have Charleston, South Carolina in the south, very far removed away from this American rebellion in New England. You have Philadelphia, which does have some access to the Atlantic Ocean, but not direct access to the Atlantic Ocean. You have Boston itself, which clearly is out, because you're there already. And then right in the center, effectively, you have the emerging city of New York City. And this will be the location that both the British General Howe, who will be taking over full command of operations on the ground in the North American colonies, And Lord George Germain, the Secretary of American Affairs, we can say, both agree is the ideal location that they should strike next. It's a mistake that we make all the time throughout history. Again, when you're dealing with uh, uprisings, rebellions, and insurgencies, you look at a map of a place, you see a capital city or a large city, and you really truly believe that capturing that city will give you full command of the entire countryside. It's a mistake that military commanders fall into century after century. Capture Baghdad. Iraq is yours. Capture Kabul. Afghanistan is yours. Uh, Again, these are modern references, but it goes to show that it's the same very attractive fruit to be picked, but not necessarily reflective of the heart of the conflict as a whole. Well, Whenever the British evacuate Boston uh, in the spring of 1775, George Washington and the Continental officials and officers have a pretty good idea of where he's going. They really believe he's going to New York. The fact of the matter is, he's not. Not yet. After the British evacuate, George Washington will move much of his American Continental Army to New York City itself, in preparation for what he believes is an inevitable attack. When he gets there... And again, his army is not particularly strong. He finds that the British really aren't anywhere to be found. He really believed it would be a foot race to Manhattan. The fact of the matter is, when the British left Boston, they did have New York in mind, but not yet. They made sure that when they hit New York, they were hitting it with their full might. So rather than going directly to Manhattan Island itself, General William Howe would take his forces into, we, we can say, is friendlier grounds. He went to Canada. He went to Nova Scotia. And he waited. Now, as he waited, he received supplies. He beefed up his operations, so to speak. And he prepared for his great assault on New York. This will take us into 1776. Now, I know we skipped over a lot there. But one of the things you have to learn about most wars throughout world history is that when wintertime comes you often see very little, if any, actual combat operations. There is nothing to be gained by fighting in the wintertime. Your soldiers will be malnourished, they'll be sick, they'll be tired. You'll probably end up losing more to the elements than to the enemy. So both sides effectively acknowledge, especially in 1776, uh, that you're never going to fight in the winter. In that case, you're also rarely ever going to fight at night. Winter fighting and nighttime fighting is a fairly recent development in the history of human warfare. But while Howe is waiting in Nova Scotia, you're seeing things begin to change. And this will let us fast forward to July of 1776 in the city of Philadelphia. Now, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about the Second Continental Congress, the American Continental Congress, what the British believe believed to be the real heart of the political sedition of the New World. If we didn't talk about the events of July 4th, 1776, I really want to focus more on the military campaigns of the American Revolutionary War, but as I always say, uh, what good is it to understand the war if you don't understand the events that led to the war? So this will be important. It's also ground that we've all tread over many times before, so I'll do my best to put a new perspective on it. By 1776, the the American Congress is fairly, uh, we can say, uniformly in agreement. uh, That full, open rebellion is underway, And there is no better time than the present to declare your own independence. Now, there were detractors in the delegations from each state, but for the most part, this is not like 1774, and this is not like 1775. The decision is largely being made on its own. The American Continental Congress will therefore commission a a party of four or five of their members to come up with a Declaration of Independence. Uh, And Thomas Jefferson of Virginia, uh, a philosopher if there ever was one, Uh, he was a man of science, he was a man of history, Uh, he wouldn't fit well into the modern academic system because he kind of uh, mastered and dabbled in a lot of different fields. It would fall on the very erudite Jefferson to literally physically write, this Declaration of Independence. Now, I'm not going to talk to you about the process of writing the the Declaration of Independence or a lot of the thought that went into it. Uh, It's that ground that's been tread a lot before. But I do want to give you some perspective on the document. I really want you to understand this time period in a modern practical way. And I don't think there's a better way to do it uh, than just to put it in basic terms. Whenever you see the Declaration of Independence Today in the American capital of Washington, D.C., it's behind very thick glass. Uh, You could potentially try and steal it if you were living in some Hollywood world. Uh, When you see the Declaration of Independence and paintings uh, of the signing of the document you can often lose sight of what the document really is. And the fact of the matter is, aside from all the hoopla that surrounds it, uh, and aside from all the pomp and circumstance that we really lend to it, the Declaration of Independence of 1776 is a very practical, utilitarian, and simple document. Uh, We can't let the weight of history put a fog over our eyes. So what is the Declaration of Independence? Well, in its simplest form, it breaks down into two basic parts. The first part is an abstract written by Jefferson, the philosopher, drawing on many of the great philosophers of his day and of centuries before, that basically describe why any people, at any time, anywhere in the world, have the right to rebel against their government. That's all it is. He doesn't mention King George. He doesn't mention the United States. It's a basic philosophical argument. This is why we have the right to do what we're doing. The second part, very simply, is much longer. But all it is is a list of abuses and grievances the Americans felt that they've suffered. And it's a lengthy one. Several, several articles involved. All of the things that in the minds of the British colonists in the minds of the American colonists in rebellion that the British did to them to undermine their natural rights. Remember, this is the age of the Enlightenment. This is a time when ideas are really becoming powerful. Thank goodness uh, we have Twitter and Facebook and podcasts today. They really could have used it back then because ideas are powerful things and ideas are powerful weapons. The Declaration of Independence, the Enlightenment era, and really the American Revolutionary era as a whole, uh, is a great testament to the power of change that ideas can have in the Enlightenment. But what I want to look at in the Declaration of Independence, very simply, is that first little abstract that Thomas Jefferson wrote. Uh, some historians have called it the single most famous sentence in the history of the Western world. You know it, will read it and we'll do our best to pull it apart. He writes, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That really says it all. And we should all, as Americans, if you are an American, or if you live in a democratic society, really strive to to live up to that sentence. It's one sentence, and it's a powerful one. But if you say that we aren't living up to it, if you think we're coming up short, what I would say is don't feel too bad, because the man that wrote it and the people that signed the document to which it was affixed were also coming up pretty short themselves. Think about this. Whenever the, the founding fathers, if you want to call them that, signed this document, they make it very clear. It says in, the, in that sentence, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Uh, when you consider that a significant portion of the men who signed that document actually owned other human beings as slaves, think about that. They actually owned other human beings as property yet they still have the uh, chutzpah to sign their name to a document saying all men are created equal. That takes, to quote the former president Bill Clinton, that takes some stones uh, to sign a document like that. So if you believe these people are being somewhat hypocritical and probably a lot hypocritical, uh, you're not alone. And you have to understand the time in which it's written. Uh, It's a promise, but it's one that, you could argue we're still not living up to today, uh, and certainly they weren't living up to then. Remember, this is a very human drama. Let's not make it something it isn't. Let's not make it uh, something untouchable. Uh, This revolution is a revolution of ideas. It's a revolution of thought. And in many ways, the American Revolution is completed when that document is signed. The fighting, the war, that's merely defending the revolution. I mean, that's a little bit of an abstract thought, but really think about it. What is the American Revolution? Is it the ideas of of a free people, of democratic values, of republicanism? Or is the revolution the war itself? Historians will describe this war as the war of the American Revolution, because the revolution are the words. The revolution are the ideas. And you could say that the final shot, not the first shot, is fired with this Declaration of Independence. Now, the other thing you need to know about the document, we won't belabor the point too much, is that this document was not meant to be written over anyone's head. This document was meant to be read out loud two groups. It was meant to be consumed in a public sphere in newspapers, uh, in taverns, uh, those sort of places. People were meant to hear it and understand it. It's not meant to be a complicated document and it really isn't. I'd encourage you to take some time and read through and you'll see it's a very usable, very applicable, uh, very easily understood document in many, many ways. So that's our discussion of the Declaration of Independence and that really does, um, I think, put a wrinkle into how the whole entire event is viewed, especially by the British. Because by the time the document is signed, July 4th, 1776, the British General William Howe has already left Canada and landed near New York City. Now, the force that Howe will land with in New York City, and again, this happens in July of 1776, uh, is a very impressive force. They're coming via ship. Uh, there's over 10,000 men, and he's still expecting 15,000 more when he lands near New York. Some historians have suggested, and and there really are very few examples that can even come close to refuting this, that the force that Howell lands with, as far as a naval invasion, is the single largest naval fleet uh, to ever sail uh, in the history of the Western world. The Chinese may have had something bigger, uh, because they usually do. Uh, but this was a major, major force. George Washington, by this point in 1776, again, because he knew how important New York City was, had stationed himself in Manhattan. He'd built a series of small forts that were very insignificant, and he knew the onslaught was coming. Whenever he saw Howe's invasion force in July of, of 1776, he was not prepared for just how much the British Empire was prepared to throw at them. So who were these people that landed with William Howe, and what were they doing there? Well, many of them were British. We talked about that. But some of them were Americans. And um, many, many, many of them were Germans. Now, the people we're talking about have been popularly conceived as the Hessians, Hessian soldiers, and my next book, which should be out in the year 2015, is really the first major publication to explore these people, who they were, where they came from, and what their roles were, oh, say in the last 60 years. I mean, there's been a few of them, but the story is much bigger than we tend to think. But basically... Who were these Hessians? What were they doing there? Here's, here's the gist of it. And I'll do an entire podcast on it in the future, I promise you, when we're doing publicity rounds for this book, again, released in 2015. The Hessian soldiers, uh, were only partially Hessian. They were all German. They're from the German, uh, uh, world that we call the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire was basically 350 or so uh, individual German states, individual German countries you could say. They all spoke the same language, Uh, they had a similar culture, but they considered themselves individuals. Well these, as you can imagine, uh, states are very small in some cases, 350 of them in basically the stretch that is today modern Germany, and because of that they were largely irrelevant in the modern geopolitical world of the 1770s. Well, one of the ways they became relevant uh, was by renting out their armies almost entirely to the highest bidder. Now, at this point, the British armed forces contained about 40,000 men, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, but not very much, and certainly not enough to to sacrifice completely on the North American continent. So the British believed it would be far more cost-effective simply to rent out an existing army, one that's already prepared, already equipped, and already ready to go, uh, then training and equipping its own army. Uh, there's a lot of mythology surrounding these German soldiers. One is that they were mercenaries. We always use that word. But a mercenary is actually paid to fight. Uh, and these men really weren't. I mean, they were paid by their king uh, if they had one. Uh, there's different titles in different German uh, states. Uh, but really, they were paid the same as they were always paid. Their their boss, their overseer, just basically uh, ordered them to go to North America. They weren't really paid by the empire, so to speak, at all. Uh, they did come from Hesse Castle and Hesse Hanau. Those were the Hessians. But they also came from four other German states. and They weren't Hessians at all. Uh, they came from Brunswick. They came from Anhalt-Zerbst. They came from Valdeck. Uh, they came from a number of places that, again, would not be considered traditionally Hessian. But they were used uh, as a way to to bolster the British army without a significant investment uh, of of adding more troops, either through conscription uh, or training, uh, to the British army as a whole. Now, again, we're not going to spend too much time on battles individually on wartime because we don't have the time, but there were many, many, many of them And I encourage you to look them up. Again, use my Twitter handle, at Brady Kreitzer. I'll be posting a lot each week that go in coordination with the episodes. uh, And uh, i also respond to any questions you might have about where to find more information. Uh, But the basics of the battle that occurs uh, looks like this. Washington saw the major invasion force coming. And after the additional 15,000 reinforcements to General Howe, you're looking at about 22,000 soldiers all seeking out George Washington's beleaguered Continental Army. Washington knew this was coming. He put some of his men in what is today Lower Manhattan, and he put most of them uh, on the very edge of Long Island. Long Island is where this battle will go down. It's a very intense battle, and it is by every standard the largest battle of the war. And the long and short of it is that General Howe does very well for himself. George Washington's army cannot compete with the largest and most powerful military in the world, and he's forced to retreat. Dividing his forces uh, in Manhattan and in Long Island was a fatal mistake, and George Washington will retreat into Brooklyn uh, to try and lick his wounds from the major British assault. Now, General Howe could follow Washington and attack him in Brooklyn. He's very clear about that, but he chooses not to. The reason is is that Washington begins to entrench himself, uh, Washington begins to dig in, and Howe believes that he could beat him in almost every circumstance. There's other times and better times to fight him that won't cost him as many people. This is all going down in August, late August of 1776, and it's in and around New York City. We call this the New York and New Jersey Campaign. The basic standard we're looking at now is that Howe feels very confident after the Battle of Long Island, and why shouldn't he? He's gone toe-to-toe with the American rebels, and just as he suspected, they were no match for his regular soldiers, for his irregulars, and for his uh, German auxiliaries. George Washington is beginning to dig in in Brooklyn. He understands that if he's attacked again, and he's attacked with the ferocity Uh, And in the manner that he was attacked at the Battle of Long Island, he simply will not survive. And that's one of the major keys I want you to understand about the American Revolution. And it's something that I I think makes it so much more impressive than the whitewashed and, and, and sort of fanciful narrative we typically have. If George Washington's Continental Army is captured, the war is over. Period. The Revolution survives that is, the defense of the Revolution, survives in George Washington's army. If that army ever falls, it's finished. Think about this like the American Civil War. As soon as the Army of Northern Virginia is captured, the Southern Rebellion is effectively over. It's the same idea. It's wonderful if you're very angry at the government. It's great if you feel like your rights are infringed upon and you're stomping your feet. But if you don't have an army, then you have nothing. And Howe understands that. Eventually, he's going to get Washington. Washington understands this too. And it becomes a game of cat and mouse. He knows if he goes toe-to-toe with a much bigger and much more powerful and much more well-supplied force, he's going to lose every time. So Washington, from Brooklyn, looks at the massive enemy army before him and makes a decision. You can fight like a man and die, Or you can run and live to fight another day. In this kind of war, in this kind of revolution, you always have to think ahead of your opponent. You have to use any advantage you have. On the evening of August 29th, George Washington will do just that. It's a very foggy night. It's a stormy night. Visibility is very low. George Washington and his Continental Army uses this uh, cloud cover, we can say, to slip across the East River back to Manhattan. And when the sun comes up the next day, General William Howe is shocked to see that the enemy he thought he had right in his grasps has slipped through his fingers. Little does he know, this is just the first of many times that will happen. Washington will prove to be a slippery fellow. You have to remember, and the only way you can really see this is by looking at the war from the British perspective, something that many, many Americans do not like to do and they're only cheating themselves, that from the British viewpoint, this rebellion has to be ended as quickly as possible. Remember, the revolution was a revolution of ideas. It was a revolution of politics. It was a revolution of, as we say at the beginning of each episode of Season 3, ideologies. If you can squash that revolution on an ideological plane rather than on the battlefield, then you spill much less blood, And you make the reconciliation process much greater. After Washington escapes to Manhattan, he'll take Manhattan Island. And General Howe, still on Long Island, makes the decision that he's going to try to end the war through a diplomatic means. Remember, he just won the biggest battle of the war. He doesn't know it's going to be the biggest battle of the war. It's the biggest battle yet. Battle of Long Island will be the largest battle of the war. And he calls an American delegation to meet him on Staten Island which the British also control in 1776. We call this the Staten Island Peace Conference, and this is a really interesting idea, and it's something we skip over all the time in the popular narrative, because we just love war, and we just love battles. Even though, throughout most of the war, George Washington and the Americans don't do so well. But the Staten Island Peace Conference, I think, is one of the most revealing moments of the entire year 1776, and also one of the least discussed. General William Howe will call upon an American party of politicians and diplomats, and you might know them. John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, a few others all come to Staten Island, and they come to meet and discuss terms of agreement. Now, whenever William Howe sits down with them, and they'll meet for about three hours total, that's it. That's why this event doesn't get as much play as something that's much bigger than that, probably would. He says very clearly, We have some laws you don't like. We're willing to be flexible on many of them. Lord George Germain, the Secretary of American Affairs, is fully behind me on this. I speak on his behalf. He says, we'll work out the fine details, but you have to remain and pledge allegiance to the British Empire. That's really his sticking point. He says, you have to stay part of the British Empire and this rebellion. It doesn't have to happen. Benjamin Franklin very clearly says, our only term of agreement is that you recognize our uh, new independent status as the Republican United States of America. Now, there's very little common ground there. And this is how negotiation works. You find common ground. The only sticking point for how in the British Empire is that you remain loyal to Britain. And the only uh, firm point the Americans come with is that we will be separate and you will recognize us. They both want to avoid a war, if they can, any more than they already have. But clearly, there's no common ground there. The Staten Island Peace Conference will last for three hours, that's all. Both parties will split and return to the status quo, which is now combat. Now, as we move into September uh, and October of 1776, again, I don't want to spend too much time on any one battle. Here's effectively how the rest of the New York campaign plays out. William Howe will invade Manhattan Island, where Washington has set up with his rebels. And of course, Washington's faced with that same decision he has to make all the time. Do you stay in one place? Or do you run and live to fight another day? If he stands toe-to-toe and fights with William Howe, a man with more men, more weapons, and an endless supply line from the, from the super wealthy British Empire in the Atlantic Ocean, he will lose. It's that simple. You have to understand how desperate... 1776 really was for the American cause. There's a reason this year is held so sacred to the American people today, because this was some of the darkest times you'll ever see in the American Revolution. If you would have asked George Washington himself in 1776 if he really believed that this war would swing his way, I would be hard-pressed to believe that he would say yes. It was that desperate. If you ever went toe-to-toe with the British Army, you would lose. Because of that, Washington does the smart thing. Maybe not the most macho thing, but this is going to be a long war. Washington leaves Manhattan Island and abandons it, including a fort full of his own men, to William Howe. He'll position himself in a place called White Plains. Um, If you're looking at Manhattan Island, it's in the far north of the area. And there will be a battle there. Once again, you see what happens. The battle goes down. Washington gets the worst of it. And he flees, this time, into New Jersey. Now, we're moving into the deep winter of 1776. And if you're William Howe, you want nothing to do uh, with a winter combat, especially on the enemy's home turf. You don't want to do it. But the game is very simple. How do you stop? If you capture Washington, if you just trap him in one place and stomp him out, this entire thing ends then and there. He doesn't know this war will go on until 1783. At any rate, here's what you'll see from Washington. Washington moves into New Jersey, and the British will follow. Now, the British will follow under the command of a new general named Charles Cornwallis. Cornwallis is directly below in rank William Howe. William Howe will remain in New York City on Manhattan Island, and he'll fortify and supply the location. Believe it or not, all the way until the end of the war, 1783, Manhattan Island, the New York City metro area today, is going to be the British base of operations for this entire conflict. Once they get it, they never let it go until the peace agreement is signed. So throughout the history of the war, the British control and dominate and occupy New York City. But again, it's that same fatal mistake we always talk about. You control the major cities, but you don't control the country it's a war of ideas you can hold all the cities you want but the countryside now just becomes the new home base for this kind of fighting charles cornwallis will chase george washington all throughout new jersey and as he's doing it they're getting in small skirmishes they're getting in small battles and everywhere the british go they're effectively taking command of the location now this the american revolution in new jersey is a really incredible experience If you ever have the chance to drive through the state, you will literally see battlefield after battlefield after battlefield. And I know I'm making this very simple. I say it every episode. We have to be selective and we have to be brief. We have to hit the high notes. But I'm telling you, this entire New York and New Jersey campaign in 1776 is so deep and so rich with detail. There's just so much you can study more beyond this. I'm just giving you the bare bones of it. It hurts me as much as it hurts you, I promise. But as Cornwallis is chasing Washington throughout New Jersey, he's capturing city after city. And most of this fighting is being done by those German auxiliaries that we've talked about. Well, Washington can't compete with them either. The American Continental Army is not in a position to really go toe-to-toe with armies like that. And they slip across the Delaware River into Pennsylvania. Now, Cornwallis has very strict orders. If Washington escapes into Pennsylvania, let him go. We've got the city. We've got what we want. Um, there's no sense in overextending ourselves. So what you basically have by December of 1776 is this. All of Long Island, all of Staten Island, all of Manhattan Island, and everything north is controlled by the British Empire. They control the vital Hudson River, which takes them all the way to, To the lake champlain river valley and therefore all the way to the saint lawrence river and all the way to canada where their very strong uh, holdouts of quebec montreal uh, will sit firmly in british hands they've unified the entire northeast of the american colonies new jersey will be connected by a chain Uh, some british and german soldiers in this city connected by a road to some German and British soldiers in that city, all the way back to New York itself. Now, for Washington in Pennsylvania, he realizes this is an impossible situation. If you're going to fight on their terms, it's very simple. He knows it. You're going to lose. Again, this is as desperate as it gets for the American army. Their enlistments are running out. They have less than 10,000 people on hands, much less, in fact. They're running out of men. They're running out of options. Washington doesn't know what to do. It then moves to Christmas Day of 1776. Now there's an old axiom in European War. Again, you don't fight in the winter, if you can avoid it. You almost never fight at night. And you never, ever, ever fight on a Christian holiday. Christmas is one of those days. From Washington's viewpoint, if he doesn't start thinking outside the box, he's never going to be successful. If he plays by the enemy's rules, he's going to play himself into his own demise. So he makes the very difficult decision to strike when his opponent is prepared the least. And that, of course, is the Christian holiday of Christmas. Washington will use the cover of Christmas to launch what we would basically call his greatest victory of the year in 1776. But in reality, again, not making this the American Rebellion against the British Empire, but simply a rebellion against an empire, you would consider it by every standard possible to be a low blow, a cheap shot, a sneak attack. But again, if you're George Washington and the Rebel Army, if you play by their rules, you lose every time. So on Christmas night, the one night of the year you never, ever fight, Under any circumstances, in the axiom of European warfare, George Washington takes what's remaining of his Continental Army. He crosses the Delaware in the middle of the evening. He approaches a Hessian encampment at the city of Trenton, New Jersey, and he does the unthinkable. He attacks. On Christmas night. They have no understanding that this is coming. These men have been partying and making merry all day. They're thousands of miles from their families. And of course, why would they ever think that they'd be attacked in any way? Why would their guard ever be up? Don't ask why is their guard down. Ask why it would ever be up. Washington's attack is so successful and so unexpected, and those two are mutual in this regard, he actually captures 1,000 Hessians. It's a dominant victory. Now to everyone else in the world, this is a cheap shot, this is a trick, this is a low blow, this is a swindler's game. For George Washington and the fledgling American Revolution, you take what you can get when you can get it. This is a very basic uh, insurgent tactic that we've seen in almost every rebellion in world history that's had any success. And it gets back to the old axiom I've repeated probably a dozen times by now. You don't play by their rules. You'll lose every time. If you want to do something dynamic, if you want to do something spectacular, you break the rules. It's that simple. George Washington's victory on Christmas Day, December 25th, and the morning of the next day, December 26th, 1776, is the one victory that he can hang his hat on. He does the same thing a few days later, in January of 1777, to the city of Princeton, New Jersey. But that's what we see. After this occurs, Washington goes into his winter encampment at Morristown, New Jersey. The British will slink back to New York, and that's where they'll wait for the spring thaw of 1777. So what's the lesson in all of this? Well, there's two things I really want you to think about when you hear the year 1776. Don't listen to this podcast and think, Brady doesn't know what he's talking about. He's skipping over all these important details. The Battle of White Plains, the Battle of Harlem Heights, I understand. We're skipping a lot of it. Uh, we're making it easy. We're making it simple. I want you to understand the basics. You can dig further into the story uh, through either my resources that I give you or the things you find online and fill in the story. But I want you to understand just how black and desperate and terrible 1776 is for the Americans. At one point, they have their highest moment of the war, the Declaration of Independence assigned and released. That's the revolution. This is a revolution of ideas, of ideology, of politics. The war is merely the defense of that revolution, not the revolution itself. And when you're trying to defend a revolution, you take any win you can get. I mean, the British can capture every city in British North America. They can capture Boston, they did. They can capture New York, they have. They can capture Charleston, they will. But the war will continue, because this is not a war fought over a a hill, uh, or a piece of high ground, or a strategic waterfront. This is a war that's fought in the hearts and minds of the people involved. It's an ideological war, and it's a war that, quite frankly, you just can't win with traditional military means. This will be a long war. This will be a terrible war. You'll see the best of people, and you'll see the worst of people. You'll see neighbor versus neighbor. You'll see countrymen versus countrymen. Uh, You'll see race versus race. The American Revolution is much more complicated than we think. In 1777, you'll realize that in the fullest form for the first time. On the next episode, we discuss the year 1777, the year of the hangman. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.